0: But this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions, like this one.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
3: Nearly 33 million U.S. adults live with a condition called osteoarthritis. If you're one of these people, you probably think of it as joint pain or arthritis. Osteoarthritis, or OA, is the most common form of arthritis. It's when the cushion between the joint breaks down and the underlying bone gets damaged. This damage can develop slowly, but it can get a lot worse over time. OA can cause pain, stiffness, and swelling. It can also limit movement, making everyday tasks difficult and painful. Today, we're taking a closer look at what it's like to live with OA, what's happening inside the joint, ways to stay active despite the pain, and the things we can do to reduce OA symptoms for a happier, healthier life. Carrie Mellon has spent decades working with her hands as a costumer in film, a competitive equestrian, and rancher. She was diagnosed with osteoarthritis 30 years ago and developed a device that aids with gripping and holding. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleased to be here. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine, and you're listening to Word Has It, a special edition of WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. So, Carrie, can you start by sharing your OA journey? When and where did you first start noticing joint pain?
0: It was after I had my first and only son, and that was about 30 years ago. I was 32 and getting back in shape by doing what I loved to do at the time, and that was jog. But I'd notice after a run that my joints and uh, the lower part of my thumbs would be kind of throbbing and sore. And it it seems strange, but perhaps uh, just the shaking and and jogging of my arms, or maybe I was clenching my fists, but that was the earliest signal that something was up with my thumbs. After that, you know, I, I tried to be cognizant of not gripping my hands in that fashion when I was running, but it seemed to kind of get worse. I've always had horses, and so um, I noticed when I was working around the ranch, they would be very sore. And can you tell me what the pain felt like? It would come and go in the beginning, I would be particularly working on painting a fence or building a corral, a new corral, or, or just loading a lot of hay. And I'd notice my thumbs would be really sore at that period. And then I'd, I'd take an aspirin or something like that to, to let the swelling go down. Um, and at that time, I, I really didn't think too much of it. I, I thought, oh, it you know, my hands will get stronger, you know, I'll just work harder. I'll carry more hay and I'll, I'll lift more and I'll just get stronger. But in fact, that didn't help. And it was actually making it worse, not being cognizant of how I carry things and, and lift things. I didn't realize that I was going to have a, a, a disorder that would get worse if I wasn't careful with it over time it
3: sounds like you were super active. So what were some of the things, how, how did it start to limit you over time?
0: Uh, well, my occupation uh, for the last 35 years has been a costume designer and builder. And so I've worked on television shows and and, moves and movies and films. And that involves a lot of physical labor. It's a lot of moving wardrobe, lifting heavy boxes, a lot of pinching hangers. I mean, hundreds of hangers a day, a lot of safety pins, sewing. Uh, so my hands get a real workout. And then also in my off time, I have a ranch and I've always been an equestrian and have um, also had uh, sports that were involved horses, team penning and roping that involves a lot of work with your hands, lifting hay bales, holding hammers, paint rollers for fence, just maneuvering a 1200 pound horse underneath you with your hands and the delicate grip that that takes. You know, I would, I would work all week and on the weekends I'd come home and I'd work some more. So my hands were really, truly suffering. And, um, you know, even though I, I tried to be careful. It seemed to be getting worse and worse every year. And uh, so I, I did seek relief from my my doctor, and um, we tried a lot of different things in the beginning. We tried some topical analgesics. we we tried, you know, splinting, wrapping, we did some anti-inflammatories. and that did seem to help. but I, I realized that it was going to have to be a combination of different things to help. I didn't want to take a lot of drugs, but I wanted to stay really active. So I had to do some experimentation about how to keep that balance of being able to do everything I wanted and be as pain-free as I could.
3: When we think about joint pain happening to us over time, a lot of people think about the big joints, so the knees or the hips or back pain. But with osteoarthritis, as you mentioned, it can affect smaller joints too. So for you, it was your hands. Were there other joints that were painful?
0: Um, yes, it was my fingers and my lower thumb and then also my knees. I, you know, from from kneeling and, and horseback riding and the, the position of the legs on a horse. So my knees also suffer from osteoarthritis. For my hands, it's a little bit different story. The hands are just so much more delicate and I could never really work around my thumb joints. So it, it's not just a matter of strengthening those ligaments and tendons. It's also finding other ways to do things and finding aids to help me do those things.
3: So can you tell us about other equipment that you use to help you do the things you wanted to do?
0: Yeah. Something as simple as, as turning a key in a, in a door or car was difficult. I mean, I could do it fine, but it, it was painful. So, you know, I got the, the larger key fobs and the larger key ends that go onto the keys. You know, opening jars, that's really difficult. So I got some of the different kinds of jar openers for different kinds of, of, of equipment. Simply holding things like rakes and, and, and my electric toothbrush for, for, for three minutes, that, that was hard.
3: So what are some of the other things? So horseback riding was, so, was very important to you. How did you continue to, to do that?
0: Because I have them in my backyard, uh, horseback riding doesn't only mean sitting on a horse and holding onto the reins. It also means everything else, that it's maintaining the, the horse, the corrals, lifting up the feet, holding a hoof pick, uh, tacking the horse, raking, cleaning, corralling. I used adaptive aids. I used silicone bands on my tools. I, I could use the silicone bands on my rake and on my um, broom, and you just slip your hand into it. Now, it doesn't hold it completely but it allows you to just release your grip a little bit and let the blood flow flow get back into your hands and it also allows you to keep that upper body strength because one thing that happens when you have arthritis is is you stop to do activities and you don't even know why you're doing it really you know why has grandma stopped Painting, doing that fine art, or holding a crochet hook—it's because it's, it's kind of painful now. But there are adaptive tools to help you hold those little things: a paintbrush, you know, a, a, a knitting needle. There are things that can help you, and so it's important that our physicians make these things uh, known to patients, um, give options. And so, when I needed to repair a fence, uh, I needed to paint it. Now, everybody hates painting. But there are bands that you can put on your paintbrush or your paint roller, adaptive aids. They call them adaptive aids, assistive devices, whatever you want to call them. There are things to help you keep doing the things you love, whether it's holding a tennis racket, which you can get a band for that, or a fine art brush or, or you know, painting a, a whole barn. So I depended on these little aids to help me do the things I love. And I'm as active at 64 as I was at uh, 24 um, because I've, I've found ways to continue doing these on, on my own. I did, you know, I had to kind of research and find these things, you know. I talked about the, the splinting earlier on and, and the uh, splint on the thumb that kind of protected it from, from squeezing all the way. This was given to me by a therapist and suggested by a doctor, an orthopedic surgeon. But the reality is it it was something that would get dirty right away. It was Velcro and elastic, and I couldn't really use that outside, you know. I, and plus, it didn't allow me to, to grip all the way. And I didn't feel anything in my hand, too, because it was this thing here so... I really lost a lot of control, so I had to find other ways around it. And sometimes I would notice one hand would be worse than the other— but I also recognize that it's really important to keep that muscle balance, keep strong on both sides. So I refuse to say, Oh, well, I can't use my right hand. So I'll use my left hand. No, I, otherwise my, my right hand muscles would, you know, would atrophy my arm would uh, atrophy. I, you have to weight bear equally on both sides to, to keep equally balanced, to keep your neck in alignment, your back in alignment, everything. So I, I needed to find a way to make sure I kept using each hand equally and kept each part of my body equally strong. Between all of the different types of activities you wanted to do
3: and the types of assistance you got from health professionals, were there things that you kind of tried to do on your own that helped you do some of these day-to-day activities?
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I definitely wanted to continue to be active in all of my sports and hobbies. And so, um, you know, one day when I was cleaning out my barn, I, I my thumbs were so sore and they were spasming that I grabbed some duct tape and I made a loop around a, a broom handle. And just a simple loop on that broom handle allowed me to hold it and control it with without a lot of grip. And so I I had an idea to come up with some kind of a soft little silicone band to hold on to it, which I created in my kitchen along with my two sisters' help. And so I did develop something that helps you to hold on to tools and equipment. And they come in uh, many, many different sizes for something as small as a baby teether or spoon all the way to a boat oar or a a, a walker trainer. And it's this tiny little silicone cuff that you can slip onto anything that allows you to relax your hand and squeeze as hard as necessary. Because the trick is to not have a death grip on items, but to be able to relax your hand, let a little of the blood flow go back in. So it's kind of like a, I made sort of a handle for just everyday items. And um, yeah, it's, it seemed to really help me.
3: <laughs> you have shared so many great Tips and insights for for managing over decades. Is there anything else that you think is just a key, key lesson that we should take away?
0: I do. Um, you know, there is that old saying, use it or lose it, and it's so true. You have to really think about why you're not doing some of the things you used to love, and why you let those things fall away. You know, you used to paint. Why aren't you doing it anymore? You used to knit. You used to, you know, dance. Really think about it. I, I think that people uh, get uncomfortable or get some pain in their knees or their hips or hands, and, and they think it's it's a downhill sliding that's never going to get better. But that's not the truth. We just need to m- manage our movements in a different way as we age. And um, so I would say, really think about some of the reasons you might not be doing the things you have always loved. And uh, I bet you can find a way around that.
3: That is great advice. Thank you so much.
0: Very nice to meet you. Uh, and I enjoyed speaking with you today. I'm
3: Dr. Neha Batak, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. And you're listening to Word Has It, a special edition of WebMD's Health Discovered Podcast. Welcome back to Word Has It. Joining me now is Dr. Kim Templeton. Dr. Templeton is professor of orthopedic surgery and sports medicine at the University of Kansas. She's also past president of the US Bone and Joint Initiative and the American Medical Women's Association. As a primary care doc, joint pain is one of the most common symptoms I see in my patients. A lot of times we just try to live with it uh, until we finally show up at the doctor's office.
4: Is there a typical age range for an OA diagnosis? This tends to occur um, in people that are somewhat older, but you do start to see an uptick in the incidence of osteoarthritis, usually over the age of 40. You see patients earlier, though, with osteoarthritis if they have other things that, can in- that damage the joints, such as being overweight or obese, or if they've had an injury, especially related to sports. What joints are most
3: commonly affected?
4: One of the more commonly affected joints is the knee, but then you also can see it in the shoulder and in the hip and in the hand. And especially in women, having osteoarthritis at the bottom of the thumb is extremely common. And as you look, uh, as women get older, almost all of them are going to have osteoarthritis at the base of their thumb once they reach a certain age, usually over the age of 80 or so.
3: Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I
4: did not realize that it. it's so common and that there's this gender difference. A s- significant gender difference. And if you think of about what that means from a functional standpoint, if you have trouble using your thumb or there's pain at the bottom of your thumb, it makes it difficult to do day-to-day things such as open doorknobs, opening jars to be able to cook. So it's not just having OA, but there are implications when you do have this in your hand.
3: In primary care, we see a lot of patients that come in with the joint pain, some stiffness. It's on and off maybe sometimes. What are the most common complaints you see by the time they get to your office as an orthopedic surgeon?
4: Well you're right those are the common symptoms it's pain it usually starts off with pain that is present with activity but if it continues can be even pain including some aching that's even when they're not active especially if it's osteoarthritis of the knee having pain if they've been sitting for quite a while and then try to stand up there can also be issues with the joints getting stiff on occasion the joints can be swollen and so, typically, by the time patients come in, they are having some level of disability, meaning they're having difficulty doing day-to-day activities, whether it's exercise or doing their jobs at work or even taking care of things at home. It's not unusual that the diagnosis is somewhat delayed because people, a lot of people assume that joint pain is just a part of aging, and so why seek care if this is just part of getting older? But it's important to understand that there are things that can be done, and so you don't need to wait until you're completely disabled before you seek care for your, for your joint pain. Can you walk
3: us through what's going on inside the joint when OA is first
4: starting? And is there a silent phase before you start feeling symptoms? So inside all of your joints is this material that's called articular cartilage. That You have the bones that, that make up each side of the joint, and then there's a cap of cartilage on each side. Within that cartilage are proteins that hold water. It's kind of like a firm gelatin. And so when you use that joint, those areas of water and proteins help cushion the joint and help cushion the bone arthritis happens when that cartilage starts to break down. And so that typically the the underlying cause is inflammation, but that can occur if there is an injury, Um, like if you think about the knee, if you're playing sports and you tear a ligament, you've not only torn the ligament, but you've probably sustained some level of damage to the cartilage cartilage, especially in adults, doesn't heal. And so, that, that cartilage can continue to, to have more and more injury, but there's also an inflammatory response to that that causes the proteins in the cartilage to break down. And so, essentially, arthritis is losing that cushion, whether initially from an injury and then some inflammation or just inflammation on its own. And so, gradually with time, that cartilage gets thinner and thinner and then starts to tear. You asked if there's a pre-osteoarthritic phase, and yes, there is. Um, and that's the phase that we're in where there's a lot of research now, because if we can identify people with early arthritis, maybe between blood tests and x-rays and things, if we can find them, that would be the perfect point to intervene to hopefully keep the cartilage from continuing to deteriorate. We just haven't perfected that yet.
3: What increases someone's risk
4: Gender is is a risk factor, as is sex. Those have somewhat different impacts on the risk of OA, but we know across the board that women have uh, higher incidence of OA in almost every joint than than do men. There also is a genetic component to it. So when I see patients in the office with arthritis, they'll say, well, my mother had it or my grandfather had it. Does it increase the risk? There does seem to be an inherited component to that, but a major risk factor is also obesity. We're not clear uh, about the relationship between obesity and osteoarthritis in that we can see people that who are obese have increased risks of developing osteoarthritis of their knee, which makes sense because that increased weight puts more pressure on the knee. You mentioned that there's a specific
3: role that sex and gender can play. Could you talk a little bit more about that and help us understand the difference between the two and and the interplay with OA?
4: Sex and gender are different but related terms. Sex refers to who you are physiologically, what your chromosomes determine that you are. Um, and so you're either XX or XY or some variation of that. Your gender is how you're presented to society. Are you a man or a woman? That impacts how often you, from this perspective, how often and when you use healthcare resources. And so in terms of the impact of sex on developing OA, there's likely an impact of estrogen as we know that estrogen seems to help maintain cartilage. And so if you lose estrogen after menopause or due to other health conditions, that could be responsible for some of the loss of cartilage and the increased risk of developing arthritis. The way women are lined up, the way especially our legs are lined up from the pelvis to our feet is different. That changes how the joints, especially the knee, are loaded, meaning how much pressure is put on them, and that may increase the risk that the joints start to break down. Um, Women are also higher risk of, of joint injuries, especially knee injuries, and if injuries can lead to OA, that's another factor. Although interestingly, if you look at knee injuries and developing OA, Women tend to develop osteoarthritis sooner after a knee injury than do men and at higher rates. So this may, again, get back to the inflammatory part because we know that women are prone to having more inflammation than are men. There also tends to be some differences in gait or how people walk. There are differences between men and women or male and female and how your legs move when you walk, even if you don't have osteoarthritis. That, too, may change how, how cartilage is loaded, and in terms of the gendered component, we, we know as women that there's this expectation that we take care of everyone else first before we take care of ourselves. And so that doesn't impact the risk of developing arthritis, but it does mean that we tend to seek care for arthritis at a later, later stage. So we know that women, by and large, tend to have more disability and loss of function by the time they present to a healthcare professional for their joint pain Where that can have an impact is although men and women both get better after we provide treatment for osteoarthritis, if women have more pain and worse function coming into that treatment, it typically means that their their outcomes are not as good.
3: So if we're putting it all together, is OA just OA or can it play a role in other
4: health conditions as well? That's a great question, and I think something that we do need to continue to look at because medicine is, I think, too siloed at this point. If you look at conditions such as obesity or diabetes or heart disease, those patients are more likely than not to also have osteoarthritis. If you look at people with osteoarthritis, they typically have a multitude of health conditions, again, obesity, heart disease, and diabetes, but also things such as depression and lung disease, and it's really hard to figure out how those two necessarily fit into osteoarthritis. If you look, again, at at sex and gender differences, although both men and women with arthritis are more likely to have other health conditions, women have more of those conditions, and they tend to be even more significant. We're not sure of the role between those two. It may be that if you have painful joints, especially in your legs, and you're not able to exercise, that may impair the ability to treat other conditions like heart disease and diabetes. If you have a condition in which exercise and activity is a component of management and treatment, if you're having too much pain and you can't do that, then that impacts the ability to be able to take care of those conditions. We also know that there's a link between uh, osteoarthritis, especially osteoarthritis of the knee, and the risk of mortality. We know that people that have osteoarthritis of the knee that is symptomatic, meaning it hurts and it's not just something we see on x-ray, are more likely to die from cardiovascular disease. And that, again, gets back to is it potentially related to the fact that they can't exercise and help maintain their cardiac health? Hmm.
3: So what can we do to empower our patients, particularly women, to speak up at the earlier stages of their symptoms?
4: I think it's important to empower patients, both men and women, but especially women, to speak up to your healthcare provider when you're seeing them. If you're having a painful joint, don't, again, assume that it's just because you're getting older and that this is a normal part of aging and that there isn't anything that can be done because there are things that can be done. Your joint pain may not be something that your primary care provider brings up, but that's because there are a lot of other health conditions that they need to deal with. They need to deal with your blood sugars and your blood pressure and your weight. So joint pain may not be something that's discussed, but I would just strongly encourage patients, if they have joint pain, mention it, especially if your healthcare professional is saying, well, I want you to go out and walk. Well, if you're having so much pain you can't walk, then that's losing that modality, but your healthcare professional isn't going to know that unless you tell them. And so speak up, let your healthcare professional know that you're having pain, and don't be afraid to speak up because you think that if I speak up, that means I'm going to have to have my joint replaced. Just telling someone you have arthritis doesn't necessarily mean that that's the straight way to the operating room because there are a lot of other things that we can do. Activity changes, um, different types of exercise to help offload the joint, Weight loss, injections, working with physical therapy to work on strengthening exercises. There are a lot of other things that can be done with a painful joint before we ever talk about having surgery. And actually, surgery for joint replacement is one in which we never tell the patient you have to have your joint replaced. That's and patients will ask me, "Is it time for me to have my joint replaced?" I don't know because I don't live their day to day lives. This is something where I tell them, "You will tell us." when you're ready to have your joint replaced. And so if you don't want to have surgery, you don't have to have surgery, but let someone know that you're hurting. And then we can start working with some of the modalities, some of the other interventions that you are okay with and that do fit into your lifestyle.
3: Dr. Templeton, thank you so much for this enlightening information. Is there anything else you think we should be taking away?
4: Osteoarthritis is, is a common condition. We need to know more about how to prevent it early, or earlier on or to pick it up earlier. But until then, it's just being aware that if your joints hurt, let someone know, and then we can, especially your healthcare professional, and we can work on ways to try to address this.
3: Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Templeton. I'm really excited to be joined by osteoarthritis researcher and physical therapist, Dr. Daniel White. So Dr. White, I'd like to start with the million dollar question, whether we are just starting to notice some joint pain or if we've lived with it for decades, what can we do to extend the life of our joints for as long as possible?
0: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows Enjoy the show.
5: The short answer is that uh, you want to move, that uh, moving is a key part uh, and key treatment that is recommended for uh, osteoarthritis uh, or arthritis uh, in general. There are countless studies that I won't bore you with uh, that support this, and it is a treatment guideline that is recommended throughout the disease course. So not only people who first start to notice their joints being a little stiff or starting to hurt in the morning, it's from there all the way up to before you're like, okay, it's time for a joint replacement it's still recommended to move and do that as much as you possibly can. So I hope that answers your question, but time to move.
3: A lot of us have heard the phrase motion is uh, lotion. So that's kind of essentially what you're saying. So the more you're moving, the more you're lubricating the joint, the more you're kind of eliminating stiffness and maybe some pain. But how do we know when to rest? So that was a big question for me with my patients was, well, when should I push through the pain and just get up and do my walking and do my exercise? And when should I say, okay, really listen to your body and just take a breather today?
5: Now I'm just going to start to answer that with what you ended with, and that is listen to your body. Uh, We are not saying, you know, push through the pain and no, no pain, no gain, or pain's weakness leaving the body. No, it It Listen to your body, but know that when you first start moving, it's going to hurt for a little bit. And if you're really nervous about moving, as many people with osteoarthritis or arthritis are, consider meeting with somebody like a physical therapist or a personal trainer or even attending an exercise class. There's exercise classes for people with arthritis that can help ease you into this. Again, listen to your body. It's very important to do that.
3: So when is it time to go see a physical therapist?
5: Sooner than later is the key thing. Typically, physical therapists see people when they have major problems with their mobility or they have severe pain. PTs are super trained at helping people before they even get to that stage. So helping people that notice... They're starting to go downhill a little bit, whether it's with their pain or getting around, and they want to stop that slide. Starting, going, and seeking out a PT at that point is absolutely appropriate. I'd like to also add, if you have arthritis and you're really nervous about starting an exercise program, it's okay. Go see your PT. They are super educated with giving you exercises that are going to work. And are not going to hurt you and you're going to be successful with
3: Can you talk a little bit more about like specific ways physical therapists can help you?
5: There is about a third of people with arthritis in their knees who have uh, what's called this fear of movement. they're uh, fearful that you know they're going to make things worse it can be quite uh, disabling because you know you can do more, but you don't want to hurt things. And what a physical therapist will do is identify these are safe things you can do, and this is where you can step on the gas a little bit and push yourself. And these are things that you don't want to do or you want to avoid. And here are situations where you want to to be careful and monitor how you're doing. Now, the best thing about PT, it's not like you only see them once and then you're done. They'll see you multiple times and most insurance carriers pay for PT. Uh, So this is a conversation rather than a one-stop place uh, you can go to.
3: One of the things I find really fascinating about your research is your work talking about walking and 6,000 Steps.
5: Yes. A couple of years ago, uh, we published a paper trying to understand, well, how many steps per day do you need to be healthy and to ward off some of the things that uh, osteoarthritis uh, causes? There's numbers associated with healthy blood pressure, a normal temperature. And we said, well, shouldn't there be a number for steps? And the short answer is we found around 6,000 steps per day to be a healthy number for people to go to. Now, that doesn't mean you stop once <laughs> you get to six thousand, you can keep going beyond that and you will continue to reap even more health benefits. But as a goal, six thousand is a good number to go after. I also'd like to add for those who are just starting out, so maybe you're listening to this podcast now and you're like, Dan, I walk like 1,000 steps per day, or I don't even know how many steps it is, but it's going to be low. So two things you can do. One, you can get yourself a pedometer or get an Apple Watch or Fitbit that will count your steps. And two, work towards the first number we found is 3,000 to be a, a good starting reference point to get to, and that really doesn't require much effort, and then from there, you work to the to the 6,000 uh, steps per day. How you get to there, it really doesn't matter. Uh, you can do it throughout the day. You can do it in chunks, however it fits, whatever you think is going to make you most successful, and uh, we've since learned uh, from publishing that study uh, almost eight years ago that it's not only is steps helpful for people with arthritis, but just your health in general, it works Wards off uh, cardiovascular disease and prevents uh, premature death. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, it is a it's a pretty big thing. So putting one foot in front of the other, getting those steps, having a way of counting them, uh, highly effective and a very healthy thing to do.
3: So clearly, exercise is really important over the long term to keep your joint mobility and stay healthy. But how about treatments? in the short term. So when you are feeling those aches and pains.
5: If you were to take the analogy of a meal, your main dish is going to be the exercise. You wanna have that and you wanna spend your time on that main dish. But then you have side dishes. The side dishes are gonna be things that are helpful, uh, but aren't going to be the main thing you're focused on. So these things considered to be probably helpful, but there's not a lot of evidence around them. So things like the compression wrapping Icing, using heat, anything you think that will be helpful uh, to help accompany you to uh, reduce your pain and keep you exercising. Uh, this also includes the topical treatments, uh, whether they're creams, whether uh, typically they're topical NSAIDs or non nonsteroidal uh, anti inflammatory agents. These are conditionally recommended. So, again, there's not a lot of evidence, but there's uh, enough to say we conditionally support this uh, as a treatment. So, again, not the main dish it's a side dish you want to make sure you have that main dish and be moving and hopefully the help the side dishes will uh, fill you up
3: so i have a question just in terms of what we can do if we've suffered an injury or a fall okay i've fallen i've injured the joint and so it at some point i'm going to have osteoarthritis
5: I think for those people who are predisposed to having osteoarthritis, the first thing to do is to recognize you are at more risk. Unfortunately, that's the case. And the main risk factor for osteoarthritis is weight. And preventing weight gain is a very effective strategy to reduce your risk for having osteoarthritis. So, I'm not talking about losing weight, but preventing excess gain. Not to sound like a broken record, but the exercise is a very healthy way to help you stabilize uh, your weight. So finding something you enjoy and help staying active to maintain that healthy weight are really two key things uh, that you can do uh, at those early stages where one is doesn't yet have osteoarthritis, but is predisposed to this.
3: We sometimes fixate on the exercises that the physical therapist has prescribed for us or, you know, doing a certain type of activity. And you just sort of said whatever it is that makes you move. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
5: Yeah, that's a great point. So on WebMD, you had Dan Lieberman uh, talk about his exercise book uh, on on the last podcast. And a key part of that book is talking about how do we have people maintain or stay active? And it's and no one's going to be really surprised. It's not the exercises that uh, are typically prescribed that people are most excited about. And there's a whole movement in behavioral change of identifying things you enjoy doing and just trying to do them more, whether this is bowling or whether it's going for a walk with friends or whether it's going out shopping. Maybe that's not the most cost-effective way, but (laughs) nevertheless, for your health, walking the mall. I mean, if you enjoy doing that, that is activity and that is definitely beneficial for your health.
3: Anything else that um, you think is a key key message that people should know if they're trying to live with the joint pain and prevent it from getting worse?
5: Yeah, I, I think... Um uh, the the last analogy, which I'm sure people are just rolling their eyes at this point, but is you want to try to stay on the horse as long as possible. That exercise horse, just try to stay on it as long as possible and know when it's the right time for you to have a joint replacement. There is a, a window of opportunity and optimization. Typically, it's people take that too early, and, but it is possible to have it too late, but you know, figuring out by leveraging the activity and being active, trying to delay that replacement as long as possible, staying on that horse, that's key. And then you'll know when it's time to have uh, a joint replacement, which is the definitive treatment for uh, arthritis.
3: That is so helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. White. It was so great talking to you.
5: Great. Thank you for having me here.
2: This will
3: conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe.